this morning, if you haven't been tracking with us, I'll just give you a quick flyover um, where we've been. We've been going uh, through the book of Revelation. In it, we've seen Revelation as four main things that we're going back to over and over again. We see it as a letter. So this book was given to people, seven churches in real time, space, culture, um, moms, dads, kids, hearing this message. It was written to a specific group of people. And so we see this book as we read it through that lens. Uh, it's a letter. It's also an apocalypse, which means uh, it is a kind of has allegory to it, that it's not literal. There's things that we have to understand as we read through it and that it's uh, unveiling things and it's using our imagination in pretty profound ways. So it's a letter. It's an apocalypse. Third, it's a prophecy. It's designed to bring conviction and comfort to the body of Jesus, to the church. Uh, and we will feel that again this morning. And then lastly, it's a liturgy of worship. It's designed to lift our eyes higher, not just trying to figure out. It's not a, it's not a, a design to be charted out and figure out the details of when Jesus will return. It's designed to pull us to worship. It's designed to, to draw us to our affections being stirred towards Jesus. And so um, that's where we've been and where we're going to go. Uh, in these next three weeks, we're going to receive a good bit of hope. Uh, we've gone through the, the sludge of some difficult passages over the last several weeks, and we'll get some of that even today. But on the back end, we're going to, after meeting the harlot, which we'll talk about in a minute, we're going to experience this bride who is the church, and we're going to find worship erupt yet again on the back end of it. And so we're going to meet uh, Babylon, and then we're going to meet the church and what Jesus is going to do and how he's going to feast with us as we close our time together. So... Revelation chapter 17, verse 1, it says this. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. So he brings John. John's just come out of seeing the bowls, which before that were the trumpets, this call of God's mercy. And he's uh, experienced that God is bringing forth justice and judgment upon the earth. We talked about that last week. And then he says, come, let me show you how this woman will be, will be judged. Again, we've come out of this. Again, it's important for us to understand this. Revelation uh, is kind of anchored upon this centerpiece of Revelation 4 and 5. And it's this picture of this one on the throne. This one, there's no competition for his throne. He is settled, seated upon his throne, and in his right hand is a scroll. And in Revelation 5, we meet this lamb who is representing Jesus. And he comes, and he's the only one who's able to take the scroll out of this one who's on the throne's hands. And it's this scroll that brings about redemption, it brings about fulfillment, it brings about restoration, it brings about all the promises that God has given to us. And so the lamb takes the scroll and he begins to pop off the seven seals. And he begins to bring forth, uh, revealing that through redemption there's going to be pain and sorrow. And we know this in life, that we experience pain and sorrow. And then the trumpets happen after the seals. And those trumpets are designed to remind the world that God is merciful and to turn to him. And lastly, we experience the bowls, which are the judgment of God. And now we enter the judgment of Babylon, who we're about to meet through the personified woman. So let's read in verse 3 of Revelation 17. It says this, And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and had seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, 
holding in her, her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So we meet this woman, and she's complex. You can tell that there's a lot going on here. We see that she's beautiful. She's adorned beautifully with pearls and other things that would communicate her beauty and her wealth, and yet she's horrifying. It's like this dual nature. We see that she's, her name is Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, um, that yet she has these abominations with her. She's the mother of Babylon's, which we'll talk about in a minute. And then she says she's drinking of something. It's as if she's um, mocking the Lord's Supper as she drinks the blood of his people. And then John says, Uh, This last part, I didn't read. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. He's caught up and he's seduced by her in that moment. It's this deep temptation to be mesmerized by her horrific beauty. If you remember Gollum in The Lord of the Rings, some of you have read the books many times, some of you don't like to read, and so you haven't, so you just watch the movies like most of us. But Gollum, he's desperately wanting this ring. Right? He's consumed by it. He's a little creature that says, my precious. Like, he's that one. You know what I mean. You get it because you've watched the movies. Most of us have. None of us have read it but three of us. Um, but he's, it's part of him, or more accurately, he is a part of it. He is so consumed by this ring. He's willing to do anything. He longs for this ring. This ring brings out the worst in someone, but also draws them in with power. The ring has qualities of power, but also qualities of evil. And it's similar to how, similar to this is how this woman is. John, the one who sat at the feet of Jesus, the one who was one of Jesus' closest friends, he in this moment, because he's on an island, because of his faith in Jesus, he is seduced by this woman. The church can be drawn to her seduction. We can be drawn to her seduction. He sees her and he marvels greatly. And then we hear more about who she is in verse 7. It says, But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom... Have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is lord of lords and king of kings and those with him are called and chosen 
and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And lastly, verse 18, and the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So we meet, we get a little more detail. It's a lot. There's a lot of allegory to hear. You got to kind of uh, understand what John's trying to say. But the beast that he references is from Revelation 13. We talked to him about him just a handful of weeks ago. He was one of the minions of the dragon that existed. He had seven heads, ten horns, and seven diadems. So seven heads against seven, and ten mean completion. And so seven, if you translate that seven heads, heads means uh, references authority. Seven means completion. So he has a complete authority given by God, but complete authority he has. Ten horns, ten again represents completion. Uh, horns are a sign of strength. And so his entire complete authority that's given to him. Again, Martin Luther said about Satan that on earth is not his equal. There is no equal. And then seven diadems. You think of diadem or crown as wealth or influence. And so he's rich, complete with influence and wealth. They're of one mind, this dragon who's using these two beasts and the woman who's riding this beast. They're all working together to bring about this plan of rebellion against the lamb upon the earth. So who is she? We hear about her more in 18, but we learn some here that Babylon is this harlot woman. It's a code that John is referencing from a history of centuries going back to Genesis chapter 11. You might remember this. There was this, this place called the Tower of what? Yeah, Tower of Babel. So that name, uh, Babylon, is coming from the Tower of Babel. And if you remember in that story, they were trying to build up this city. And the name Babel means, let us build a name for ourselves. It's this desire to reject God. It's a desire to reject the Creator and to build their own name for themselves. Let us build a society, they tried to do, without God. And that was the first Babylonian city that has resurrected itself over and over and over again, even to this day. And in God's mercy in Genesis 11, He scatters them. He changes their languages and they spread throughout the world. See, Babylon, by design, builds a world without God. And that's what the woman's doing with the beast and the dragon, all working together as personified pictures of Satan trying to rebel and cause the world to move away from the lamb and his reign. See, it is the culmination of secularism here. And the wake is destructive. It's a religion in itself taking everything and leaving you with nothing. That's her scheme. I will take from you. I will cause you to seduce me. You will give yourself over to me, and then I will destroy you. Very different than the lamb who gave everything to extend everything. It's the opposite. The lamb is the opposite of this one. See, Babylon, again, is a code for humanity seeking to build the city without God. We see it in Nineveh, in Jonah's day, 
It was this Babylonian system. We see it in Tyre. We see it in Babylon and of itself. We see it in Persia and Greece and Rome. We see it throughout human history. And we read it in uh, Revelation 17. It talked about seven mountains. And we know that it was referencing Rome because there was a festival called Seven Mountains in Rome. And so again, John's using this language to cause the church to understand what he's saying. And so when he says seven mountains, he, they know exactly what he's referencing because there's a festival in Rome called Seven Mountains. So Babylon is, is part of the system of Satan that is seeking to turn nations and states away from the Lamb and towards the beast. We're seeing it happen over and over again. She's destroying, she's seducing, she's trying to pull people away. We see that the beast is carrying again Babylon and it's equal to Rome. Rome is just a, a temporal embodiment of Babylon. We see it over and over again throughout history, other nations, other states, functioning in the system of Babylon. We find that she's just a part of it. What we see here is that she ends up uh, eating the, the nations and spitting them out and destroying them. And so in Revelation 13, we talked about this, uh, that it happened over and over again. And so there's a, um, a commentator who speaks to how this happens and they get resurrected and new countries take on this Babylonian idea. Daryl Johnson says this. He says, just when we think he, this beast, has been knocked off, he rises again in a different form. As we have seen in our modern day, just when uh, Nazism gets knocked off, communism rears its head. Just when communism gets knocked off, nationalism rears its head. Leopards, bear, lion, over and over again. The system, he tries to steer and move nations and states away from the lamb and towards the beast. So she's simply a pawn of the dragon. Which is why we must have a, and talked about this several weeks ago, we must have a healthy suspicion of all political institutions. We must. Coming out of Revelation, we have to find that as a conclusion point. No matter how they got started, political institutions, even as good as our great nation, will subtly move towards the beast. Always. There is no exception. There's no unique country. All nations will move eventually towards the beast, and there's only one which will stand. And it's so tempting and alluring to trust in systems and structures and compromise our allegiance to the Lamb. So with her authority, she rides and affects all of the world. And then in Revelation 18, we hear about her demise. Revelation 18.1, it says, After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. We hear that she's fallen. We know why she's fallen. We just read it in 17. We'll read it again in 19 that the Lamb has conquered. But fallen is Babylon, a haunt and a dwelling of demons. In the book Integrity, there's a guy named um, Henry Clout who wrote it. And in that book, it's one of the best books on integrity and leadership, if you're looking for that. 
type of book, but he articulates that to have integrity, you have to be cognizant of what he calls your wake. What he calls when, when someone interacts with you and they leave your presence, how did they experience you? He says that is a part of integrity. Wake is the result we have that we leave behind. What we leave behind is our wake. And he says that the wake doesn't lie and it doesn't care about excuses. That what people experience is what people experience. And that communicates the integrity of who you are. And likewise, the wake of Babylon is sevenfold. We find it here throughout 18. First, what we find in the wake of Babylon is that Babylon leaves the living God out of the equation. Always and forever. Babylon, the system of Babylon, will leave God out of the equation. Again, that's what the Tower of Babel was. Let us make a name for ourselves, our tribe, our nation. Let us make a name for ourselves, not God, but ourself. Secondly, Babylon is filled with sensuality. But the system of Babylon will always give into the compromise and the seduction of sensuality. Sex and sexuality always defines the culture of Babylon. Third, Babylon is filled with injustice. We see all of this in this text here. I don't have time to read it all. But Babylon is filled with injustice. The system of Babylon always leads towards Injustice, oppression, and devaluing human life is common in Babylon. If I go to verse 13 of chapter 18, it says this, that a part of uh, the merchants of the earth and the kind of the cargo that's there, he includes in verse 13, the cinnamon and spice and incense and myrrh and frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and horses and chariots and slaves, that is human souls. He just, another commodity and that commodity is human beings. It's a devaluing of certain humans at the expense of making, using them as a means to make more money. See, when you worship wealth, the God of money, you will have to sacrifice. And you will have to sacrifice anything to maintain it. And that's what's happening here. Slavery is taking place. Fourth, Babylon is filled with the worship of products. We see that the consumption and pursuit of stuff becomes the goal. That's the fruit, the wake of Babylon. Babylon 5th is filled with violence. Because humanity is devalued, violence because of nationalism or tribalism becomes the pursuit. I must stick my foot on your throat to make sure I achieve what I want. And because you're devalued, I will use you as a means to win at all costs. Sixth, Babylon is filled with deception and counterfeit. Counterfeit deities, counterfeit hopes, counterfeit dreams, counterfeit comforts. That is the wake and the system of Babylon. And then last, Babylon is filled with idolatry. Worship of anything other than God. It's a cycle and it always results in destruction. And so we see those systems. You might have experienced in our own day. The structures and the systems of Babylon integrating itself in society and culture to move us away from the lamb and towards the beast. See, the only thing in the way of Babylon is what she calls these wretched people who will not submit to her and are only willing to worship the lamb. It's the church. The church, the true church is designed to be in opposition with this one. 
And this is, this is life in the, in the sails of the church that's listening to this. Imagine, you, you know that Babylon has now fallen. You've been under the oppression of this rule for all of your life and all of your parents' life and all of your grandparents' life. But John says, she will fall. So hold on. Hold on. Rome will fall. Though we live in her shadow now, her demise and destruction will come. Don't quit. The lamb will conquer. Stay faithful. I know it's hard to stay faithful, but the reward is great. I know it can be confusing, and it looks like God might be causing something when actually it's the beast that's doing these things. Hold on. Remember that God is good. Remember that God is faithful, and don't give in to his lies along the way. He will come again. He will deliver his people, and he will bring forth justice. That's what the church is hearing as they're reading this text. And then it ends, at least for us, in this morning. In Revelation 19, it's this beautiful change that takes place. In Revelation 19, 1 and following, it says, After this fall, after seeing this great woman who has now been destroyed, after this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power Belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who uh, corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe himself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So in this conquering of Babylon, a roar of celebration erupts. This expression of praise takes place. This word, hallelujah, takes place. It's interesting. I didn't know this until I was reading this text and studying for this week, that the only time the hallelujah is used in the New Testament is what we just read. This four times. No other time. I mean, throughout the Old Testament, you get it everywhere in the Psalms, all over the place you hear this phrase, hallelujah. But here, four times, there's an eruption, praise to Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, that you fulfilled what you promised. Hallelujah. This eruption of worship takes place, that you delivered, you fulfilled what you promised. That we went through the darkness, the hardship of life, but you did conquer and you did complete what you said you would do. I mean, most of our frustrations, we navigate through life it's just a, a lack of perspective, just not knowing that he's going to come through. He's going to bring forth justice. The pain points that you feel in your own faith journey, he will make wrong things right. And we just have to hold and we have to remember that he's good and he's just and he's right and he's true and he can be trusted. This eruption of worship takes place that no one can topple our God, the king who reigns. 
His just acts are celebrated, that he is just, that his judgments are good, that he has avenged those that needed to be avenged. And as the harlot woman is being judged, the bride now steps forward. And the multitudes, this roar, this peals of thunder begins to erupt that God has fulfilled. The long-awaited moment of restoration is being unveiled. And so we meet the bride here. This is an allegory of the church. We see here, you're familiar. If you've been to a wedding, likely you read um, or heard someone mention Ephesians 5. And Ephesians 5 is this picture of, of what the, 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 um, what the what marriage, um, it wasn't that hard. Sometimes it's hard to get things out. And I was like, that was really easy, man. Uh, what marriage is designed to point to. Uh, and, and Ephesians 5, 26, it says, uh, verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. See, this picture, that's not just like, supposed to be cute for a wedding day so people can cry. Like this is a real moment where Jesus purchased his people for himself to be his bride, to be his church. And what's happening in Revelation is that is being fleshed out. See, the point of marriage is to reflect Christ. I know in our society today, marriage is something very different than it was. It's much more of a contract than a covenant. But the design of Christian marriage is to point to Christ and to point to his church. From every tribe, tongue, and nation, Jesus is the husband of the people of God. See, marriage in the 21st century is wildly different than John's day. But let me flesh out for you what the church was thinking when they heard this, a lot of them being Jews. There's three steps in the first century Jewish marriage. First is a betrothal. It's like an engagement. And so you get betrothed to one another. Engagement for us is like, you know, you do the one knee thing, you get the ring, and you go through that process, and everything's stressed, and the movies would say there's bridezilla, and so you got all this kind of stuff that's happening. But for a betrothal in the first century is that, yes, there's a, there's a commitment that takes place, but it's almost like a covenant occurs in that moment. And so if the, the husband, or if the one who's the, the, the betrothed one, the, the man, dies, the, the woman would be a widow. Betrothal was that serious in that moment. And so there was this deep commitment. Typically, the, the man would, would um, uh, use funds to purchase the, uh, the wife. I know that sounds weird, but that's what would happen. And so that would be the first step, betrothal. The second would be the groom would leave for about 12 months and would prepare his home for the soon-to-be bride. And he would go and he'd prepare months and months and months at a time. And then lastly, at the end of the betrothal, he would come with his best man and his closest friends to her house and they would get married and have a huge feast. And so similar to the story of Jesus. He purchased the church with his own blood. But he went and he has gone to prepare a place for us. That's what he said. And then third, that he will come again even at midnight when no one expects him to. 
and we will feast. And this is what we're being reminded of in the church, the church in Revelation 19. We're reminded that you are loved by one who calls himself husband to you. I know that's weird, especially for dudes that can be like, what the heck? I know it's confusing. It's allegory. This is picture of God's love for us. Remember that you're loved, we're seeing in this text. Remember that you've been bought with his own blood. Remember to live simply and make sure your heart is given to him. Remember to stay faithful. You know, it's, it's this reminder that we see from the seven churches and to us today that it's so tempting for our hearts to grow cold toward Jesus and be drawn towards Babylon. It's so easy to find our allegiance drawn towards Babylon. And, and Jesus is reminding us, don't, don't be marveled at her. She's going to be destroyed. Stay faithful to me. Stay faithful. Don't let the ring draw you in. Stay faithful to me. Come out of her. Run from her. Flee from her. She will be consumed, but stay faithful to me. And it culminates in this, this banquet, this banquet of this bride and groom and this celebration that takes place. Babylon has fallen and a feast is now being um, taken, uh, uh, this feast is now taking place. This massive feast of victory of the king. This feast goes back to the Old Testament and, and, and Isaiah 25 as I land the plane here. Um, we see this picture of this feast as it occurs. Isaiah 25, it's going to be on the screen, 25, 6 through 10. I'll read it to you. It says this. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. The veil that is spread over all nations, he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people, he will take away from the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place as straw is trampled down in, in dung hill. So we see this statement here that there will be a feast. And why is there a feast? Because death will be swallowed forever. And that's what's happening as we get into Revelation 19. How refreshing is this to the church, feeling the crushing weight of Rome under the weight of Babylon, that she too will die, that there is an exhale. John is the pastor to these churches. He's saying, do not be afraid of Rome. Do not panic. Empires and cities will come and will try to allure you, but stay faithful to the Lamb who will overcome I know there's a lot of content there, but our challenge for us today is to be refreshed in what's being proclaimed to us. Man, if you're feeling the pressing weight of life, you're feeling panicked by what's going on in your world or afraid, feeling uneasy or feeling at ease, to rest assured that your hope, our hope, must be tethered to the conquering one. He will truly right every wrong. He will establish what he purchased and he will reign forever and ever. And so I know we got these two pictures. We got this picture of this harlot who is now fallen and we have this picture of the bride and this conquering king. And so for us, we have to ask ourselves, are we remaining faithful to him? 
Is our hearts, are our hearts being put towards him? Are we growing affection in our hearts to him? If we apply it to marriage, if you just coast without any relationship with your spouse, are you going to drift? Are you going to come closer? Likewise, with our relationship with Jesus, we are invited to stir the flame of our heart, to use disciplines and practices to to get ourselves before him and grow with him. That's the challenge that we see in this text, to remember, to come out of our allegiance to Babylon, to come into and be reminded of our, our allegiance to Jesus. We remember and we give thanks to the fact that he will conquer, he will overcome, and we can trust in him. So friends, I don't know where you are. I don't know if, if the, the situation in Ukraine has just kept you up at night and you're just not able to think right. I don't know if the pressures of finances and gas prices and the effects of that are affecting you in such a way that it's terrifying you. I, I'm not sure where you are, but I know that Jesus can be enough for us and we have to lean into that. It's a challenge for us that there are things in this world that are going to pull our attention and we have to remember there's only one thing that's going to sustain us. In the good times and in the bad, he alone can, and that's what Revelation is telling us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks. Man, we need this. We need a reminder of the fact that we too can be drawn like John to the, the marvel of the stuff of this world. And Lord, I pray that you would sustain our hearts. You'd remind us of your care and your grace. We thank you that you have conquered and you will conquer. And Lord, will my words fall flat? I pray that your spirit would bring hope and courage, faithfulness, steadfast pursuit of you, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to reset even this morning upon you and your consistency, Lord, we thank you that you are faithful. We thank you that you are true. We thank you that you will complete complete what you started. Help us to trust you in it. In Jesus' name, amen. And the aisles are baskets, and baskets are elements, if you want to grab one. If you're a follower of Jesus, this